haven't met yet, my name is David. I'm the worship pastor here at Wellspring. And today we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 3. Uh, we have a little bit of a dilemma here with this passage, you and I, okay, in the next 25 or so minutes. And that is that we are going to be going through a story that I suspect for most of us is incredibly familiar. If you grew up in the church, if you knew a Christian growing up, if you grew up a few blocks away from a church, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and the fiery furnace is probably one that you're super familiar with. And if it's not, we're glad you're here. And we, this is actually more, maybe more challenging than you might think. Uh, for me, I just felt in myself the, the temptation this week to kind of do something really cute and novel and creative with this to try to keep your attention and really engage you. I'm not going to do that today. <laughs> You're welcome. You actually have a challenge and a temptation as well. And that is this. Westerners approach this story and most stories like it in the Old Testament, New Testament, and just kind of in our cultural literature with this interpretive paradigm. We read the story and we try to get it, the principle, right, or the moral of the story. Then we take out the main characters, put ourselves in as the main characters, and imagine what we would do if we found ourselves in a similar situation. You might not even know that you do that, but does, does that make sense? That's kind of the starting point for how we would, would begin to interpret a passage like this. And I don't think that's terrible. I think there's things that we can learn in that interpretive paradigm. But I think if that's all we do with this text, we will actually miss the bulk of it. We're going to miss the main point and the actual meaning that is found in Daniel chapter 3. So I do encourage you to look at it with me. We're going to go mostly verse by verse through this chapter. It's 30 verses. I have about 23 minutes left. And just to read it without comment is six and a half minutes. So I've got 15 minutes or so to kind of talk about it. But I want us to bask in the glory of this literature, the glory and the beauty in this story. Pray that maybe you see something that you hadn't seen, but maybe more than that. I think we're always looking for that when we come to the Bible. Maybe we just need to be reminded of the simple truths that we, our hearts already, already know, and we just need to believe and receive again. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come to you. We are not um, put together. We are not capable. We are poor. We are needy. We are desperate for you and your revelation today. So show us yourself in Daniel chapter three, we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Our story begins in verse one of chapter three. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and six cubits wide. That's 90 feet by nine feet wide. Really tall, kind of skinny. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. This passage, this text is dominated by this enormous image. Ironically enough, we're not told explicitly who or what this image represents. But I think if we just read through the text with kind of an eye toward some of the details, we remember what we've already encountered. It's actually pretty obvious. If you remember from last week, Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream is dominated by an image, right? A statue. This image 
is made purely of gold in Daniel chapter three. In chapter two, the image is made of different mediums, different materials. The head is gold, the body is silver. There's, there's different portions of the body that represent uh, different kingdoms that will come after Nebuchadnezzar's. Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom's gonna come to an end, then we move on to the torso, then we move on to the thighs, the, so on and so forth. And so we have this image in chapter two, we come to chapter three. Nebuchadnezzar is the the head of gold of the statue in chapter two. Now in chapter three, we have an image that is made entirely of gold. Who or what do you think this image represents? Probably Nebuchadnezzar himself. A not so subtle way of him saying, I'm not going anywhere. My kingdom is gonna be everlasting. He's set up for some trouble. We're going to see seven different references in this text, by the way, to the fact that Nebuchadnezzar set this image up. He's managing this image through our text. And for this image that's set up, there's this dedication ceremony. Verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials the, uh, the author wants that to be a real mouthful, actually. It's kind of a humor, a device of humor, so it's okay if we get to these long lists, you kind of chuckle a little bit, okay? It's okay if you don't get it. <laughs> to this image, this dedication of the image that he set up, verse three, so the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, you're chuckling, you're chuckling, all of the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Now, this, this ceremony has a liturgy with it. Verse four, the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Chris Wright summarizes this liturgy as bow or burn. (laughs) And we kind of chuckle at that because in our minds and in our culture, the intensity of this passage really doesn't transport into the United States of America in 2023 very well. It's hard for us to imagine this kind of Regime, this kind of a totalitarian dictatorship where the, the person who's at the top of the food chain literally does whatever they want and there's no repercussions. In our, in our context, uh, the president of the United States, whatever you think about this, can't even forgive student loan debt, much less just unilaterally execute people on a whim, Right? So it's actually hard for us to understand. I I want us to be mindful this morning of the fact that 2,500 years after this text was written, we live in a world where brothers and sisters in Christ continue to live under these kinds of governments. May we be marked by them as we're unified with them in Christ, amen? Bow or burn. Now, uh, why does this matter so much to Nebuchadnezzar, by the way? Why is it so intense Bow or burn. I think in part, honestly, we could just explain this by saying he's kind of an egomaniac. He's a a loose cannon. Uh, He is a character we're going to see next week in chapter four. He has some, some insecurity issues that come in a real inflated sense of self. But beyond that, 
This, friends, is what kings and kingdoms do. They define the parameters of what it means to be loyal to them. And anybody that falls outside of those lines are eliminated. Kingdoms crave loyalty, and they're actually never satisfied with a little. They're never satisfied with more. They have to have it all. This is, Joyce Baldwin, commentator on this passage, points out, this is the logical conclusion of pride. A human being saying, thou shalt have no other gods but me. Now, for the bulk of the people who have gathered for this ceremony, this is actually not terribly problematic. Most of the people, these nations who have gathered, are polytheistic. They, they worship many gods, and so adding one more is actually not terribly consequential. They fall down in worship. We see it in verse 7. Therefore, as soon as they, the people that have gathered, heard the sound of the hort, fluth, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So far, so good in a weird way, right? Verse 8, problem. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews, and this, is, this happens to the Jews a lot when they're in exile and captivity. They're singled out. Verse 9, they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, fluth, zith, I can't even say it, it's a mouthful, we're laughing, we're laughing, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. You said that, right? He's like, yeah. There are some Jews whom you have set up over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, who pay no attention to you. Oh, is that hard for a narcissist to hear? (laughs) They know how to hit him where it hurts. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. If we know anything about the people of Israel leading up to this story, we know that for them, this situation is incredibly problematic. It cuts to the core of their theology. It cuts to the core of their identity as a people. They do not worship multiple gods. They worship one God, the one true God, who says, I am your God, you are my people. You will have no other gods except for me, commandment one. Don't make an image of me or anything else. Don't bow down in worship, commandment number two. And we've already seen in Daniel chapter one that these guys, in addition to Daniel, they have, they have resolved in their hearts to be a faithful presence in Babylon. They have, they have said, we are not going to go all the way with Babylon in this. But now in our text, this isn't a matter of eating and drinking. This is a matter of life and death. Now, in, in the cartoon comedy version of this story that I sometimes kind of have in my mind, I imagine a scene where there's this vast plain, kind of like over by DIA or Kansas, same thing, you know, and there's a million people gathered and at the, their band kind of kicks up and a million people bow down and there's three guys like, <clears throat> we, we really, they haven't said or done anything yet in our text. We actually don't get the impression that they're mounting this real overt campaign. They're out on megaphones, like blasting people in, on social media. They're really just kind of being quietly faithful to Yahweh in the midst 
of this idolatry, but they're, they're ratted out. They're found out. And needless to say, the, the king is not happy about this. Verse 13, furious with rage. Do you feel the intensity of this? His face is contorting. <coughs> Nebuchadnezzar summons them, and they're brought before the king. And he says to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, or it's like nervous laughter at this point, trying to cut the tension, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Oh, it is on. (laughs) He's thrown down the gauntlet. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond in this really, it's it's subtle, but we're gonna dig into the text. This is actually a pretty um, gutsy response to the king. Verse 16, they say, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty. We will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. I want to make two observations about their response to him. They call him out by his first name. The NIV has King Nebuchadnezzar. King's not actually in there. They just say Nebuchadnezzar. If we, if we copied and pasted this scenario into our culture, imagine these members of cabinet are on trial for treason, and President Biden addresses them and says, what do you have to say for yourselves? And their response to him is something like, Joe, We got nothing to say to you, man. There's nothing to talk about. Not only this, but they actually borrow the structure of his speech to them, copy, paste, and volley it back to him. He says, if you're ready, bow down, but if not, I throw you in the furnace. They say, if you throw us in the furnace, we're gonna be okay, but if not, we're not gonna bow down. I think in these two phrases, God is able and he will deliver us. And even if he does not, I think the fusion of the two is an incredible lesson for us. And there's this incredible, robust richness of faith to be found in these two. I want to take them one at a time. God is able and he will deliver us. How can they say that to the king of of the world at the time with such confidence? They knew their story. They knew their God, and they knew their story. Alistair McIntyre says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story do I find myself a part? They knew their story. Again, in the comedy cartoon version of this passage, I I, I imagine these guys, as as Nebuchadnezzar says to them, what God will be able to you know, save you from my hand. I imagine them like looking at each other like, (laughs) he doesn't know. He doesn't know about our, do you want to tell him? You want me to tell him? 
He doesn't know that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God who delivers his people from Israel with a mighty hand and an outstretched arms through signs, wonders, and miracles. He parts the Red Sea and the people go on dry land. This is the God of manna in the desert. Out of nowhere, provision for God's people shows up. Water out of a rock. This is our God. This is the God of, of, of Elijah on Mount Carmel, who in the battle with the prophets of Baal calls down fire from heaven to consume the altar. Like, you don't know our God. This is what he does. This is who he is. This is our story. He is able and he will deliver us from your hand. Just 200 years earlier, Isaiah writes this in chapter 43 about this exile that Israel is experiencing. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Our God is able, and he will deliver us. But if not even if he doesn't. Friends, this is not a concession. This is not a negation of what they've already said. This is not an expression of faithlessness. This is an expression of surrender. Our God is able and he will, but he's free to do what he wants to do. We're not entitled to anything. Our God is able, he will deliver us, but if not, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Seriously, question mark. These guys are willing to be burned to death. Just not bowing down to a golden image. Why? Because they knew that idolatry is never worth it. Friends, idolatry is never worth it. A yes to the God of Israel is an automatic and emphatic no to every other supposed God. The option is never God plus fill in the blank. The option is God or fill in the blank. Friends, if they bow down and worship and pay allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar, a man who thinks he's a God, they've lost everything. They've given up everything. They've given up their lives if they do this. It's not worth it. Idolatry is never worth it. We cannot serve God and money. We cannot serve God and mammon. We cannot serve God and Babylon. We cannot serve, give ultimate allegiance to God or anything. Now, this does not mean we can't be citizens of a country, members of a church or a political party even. This doesn't mean we can't be members of a culture. You can keep shopping at Costco. It's okay. Remember that these guys, this story uses their Babylonian names. They received a Babylonian education. They work for the Babylonian government. But what this means is that for those who are under the lordship of God, every other allegiance comes with an asterisk. Do you know what I mean by that? Every other allegiance comes with a, hey, this actually ends at a certain point. Our only allegiance is to God. 
Every other allegiance comes with an asterisk. Jesus, when he's asked about paying taxes, unfortunately says, you gotta pay your taxes, guys. (laughs) Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. But then when the early church was pressured into burning incense before an image of Caesar while confessing with their mouth, Caesar is Lord, they said no. Asterisk. We would rather die. 10 out of the 12 disciples do die because of it. In recent history, I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer might be the the best example of this, a man who was a government official in Germany in the 1940s who wrestled with this incredible predicament. No separation of church and state in Germany at the time. And, And things are being done in the name of God that are horrendously demonic. Hits an asterisk. I can't do it anymore. Those of us who are clergy in this church, at our ordinations, we, we, we proclaim and assign a piece of paper called the oath of conformity, meaning that we will obey everything our bishop tells us to do unless it's unbiblical or illegal. I checked with Katie and Tara in the first service. We, none of us have faced that dilemma yet, thank God. I wanna ask you about yourself. Your life, your allegiance to God and your allegiance to worldly kingdoms and worldly goods, culture. Do you have an asterisk? Do you have a point at which you would say, hey, we've crossed a line here and we're done. We're out. And, and, we, and we might be delivered from it or we might experience the earthly consequences of it. Do you have an asterisk next to every allegiance? Or is there an asterisk next to God? And there's actually an allegiance that has superseded your allegiance to him. And you find yourself in a place where you'll take the kingdom of God as long as it serves that good and is in service to this ideal which is what our idols normally look like. Our idols in our culture mostly come in the form of ideologies that we lift up above everything else. Idolatry is never worth it. And the ends do not justify the means. It's striking Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. The third temptation, Satan says, I will give you the kingdoms of the world if you bow down and worship me. What does Jesus want? What does his heart long for? A people of every nation, tribe, and tongue to love and to be loved by him and to come under his rule and reign. Satan says, I got it. I will give it to you. It's yours if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, get out of here. It's never worth it. And the ends do not justify the means. Jesus will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords over every nation, tribe, and tongue, but not like this. I can even imagine our, our heroes in this story like wrestling through this a little bit. Guys, we're, we're, in, the, we're in the system. Like we're, we're, we're people of God in the midst of Babylon. We're, we're able to exercise influence and preserve the life of this people. What if maybe we should just like Let's get it over with and then keep doing our thing. It's never worth it. 
The ends do not justify the means because there is only one who is worthy. There is only one who is worthy. Nebuchadnezzar has gone to, to great lengths. To, it's been very expensive for him to gather these people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. It's been very expensive for him to put up this image and kind of throw this festival, this dedication. He thinks that's what's going on in the world. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are able to step back and they can see that. Friends, are we able to step back and, and look at our culture and just say, okay, there's a lot of stuff going on here. A lot of effort being poured into this and that and the other. They're able to step back and say, that's kind of cute. <laughs> really tall statue. All these people gathered around. This is for, for the people that have gathered. This is their reality. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego can stay, step back and they can see that there's, there's something else going on in the invisible world, but it's actually more real than what they can see. There is a king. And there are people from every nation, tribe, and tongue gathered around. There's creatures, there's, there's thousands and thousands of generations, angelic beings crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That reality is everlasting. This one is going to be gone in just a few years. Friends, are we able to step back and see the reality of God's kingdom overlaid in the kingdoms of this world? over and above the other allegiances that we're prone to. Idolatry is never worth it because there is only one who is worthy. Come back to our story, verse 19. Everybody does what they say they're gonna do. Nebuchadnezzar turns the fire up, ties these men up, and they are thrown into the fire. And God does exactly what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say he will do. Verse 24, Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and said, this is funny, <laughs> didn't we throw three guys in there? They're like, yeah. And he says, look, I see four men walking around, unbound, amen, and unarmed, unharmed, hallelujah, in the fourth, looks like a son of the gods. This is either, this deliverer is either an angel sent from the Lord or a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ in the midst of the fire with these guys. Notice they are saved in the fire, not from the fire. These men are delivered from Nebuchadnezzar's hand just as they said they would be. Nebuchadnezzar approaches the opening of the furnace and shouts, guys, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. And so they come out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was the hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched. And most miraculously of all, I think, there was no smell of fire on them. If you've been camping in Colorado this summer, like multiple days. Notice that the narrator, th th these words are coming out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth. Praise be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and they defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. 
Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, a little overzealous. For no other God can save in this way. What a dramatic reversal from the mouth of the king. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? No other God can save in this way. Now let me ask you, church, who is watching all of this unfold? Who is gathered together to watch all of this unfold? People from every nation, every people group, every language are gathering not to worship a gold image, to actually see the one God who can save. Do you see what's going on here? Can we zoom out? Yes, yes, the Lord is with us in the midst of the fire. Yes, our deliverance is not guaranteed, but for those who are in Christ, we have the hope of resurrection. But can you see what's going on here? Do you see what God is up to in the midst of this exile? We could ask the question, why is Israel in exile? And we could answer that question in two equally true ways. Because they were unfaithful to God, they rejected his covenant, and they worshiped idols. And so as a consequence, they are in captivity. But do you see the hand of God and the intent of God, his sovereignty being worked out in the midst of this situation, that he will make himself known to every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. He will make Israel, Isaiah says in chapter 49, a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. The nations are seeing and being exposed to the one God who saves. You see the brilliance of this story and the majesty of our king showing himself to the known world. Do you see how this anticipates that great day that we see in the book of Revelation? Where every nation, tribe, and tongue will be represented in this glorious worship of one who is worthy. But it's not a man who thinks he's a God. It's the God who became a man. The man who lived and suffered and died. A man who was delivered into the hands of those who would betray him. Do you see the man who hung on a cross who could have called thousands upon thousands of angels to come and deliver him. And yet he chose to stay for us and for our salvation. Do you see what God is doing here? Do you see how this text anticipates the day when the nations will gather to worship the lamb who was slain? The only God who saves will be at the center of it all. And we will say, no other God can save in this way. Let's pray.